Amen. We uh, read from Isaiah last week, and we're reading again from Isaiah this week. And I want to set the stage for our scripture from Isaiah 40, because I don't think we quite understand the context of it. And the reason I don't think we understand the context, a couple of things. First, we forget that this is our story. And sometimes we don't know our own story. And so we don't know what's going on as well. And, and part of the reason I would say we don't know the context is, as that scripture is read, we're not weeping. Because that's, if we really knew it, if we really understood the context of Isaiah 40, we would be weeping. Because Isaiah 40 takes place during the darkest days of your life. That day that haunts your dreams, fills your dreams with terror. That day you're too afraid to think about. That day that whelms up within you at the most inopportune times and and leaves you sobbing. That day that you medicate with alcohol or antidepressants. Isaiah 40 was written for that day. So as we approach this text, I approach it with a little fear and trembling. I'm, uh, even as I do this sermon, uh, hoping it makes sense, hoping it comes together a little bit. Uh, for this speech that Isaiah speaks was written to a people who had experienced the loss of everything they held dear. Everything that connected them as a people. Their nation was destroyed. Their identity was taken away from them. Their homes were gone. Their families were ripped apart by by war and warlords. They were going through the motions of life. Just knowing, wondering, would it ever change? Would it ever get any better? Was this how life was going to be? Misery, slavery, drudgery. Does God even care? That's, That's the question they were asking. Does God care? Does he even exist? How can God be good when we are living this existence? That's the questions being asked. And let me read from another text from our scripture to help us understand the context. Because this text was written during that time, and it's from the book of Lamentations. When's the last time you read Lamentations? Especially at Christmas. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to run. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festival. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. Now bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper, for the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many 
sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They're too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers the ancient splendor. She has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for she has been seen, seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. They have broken her temple as though it were merely a garden shelter. The Lord has blotted out the memory of the holy festival and Sabbath day. Kings and priests fall together before his fierce anger. Peace has been stripped away and they have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I'd hoped for from the Lord is lost. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they waste away for lack of food from the fields. Tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. They have eaten them to survive the siege. Should I go on? That's who Isaiah 40 was written for. It is from this backdrop that we have Isaiah 40. So now let me reread it with that context in mind. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah. Here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Our souls find comfort in Christmas. And as Isaiah proclaimed even earlier in his text, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah is foreshadowing what is to come. He is speaking to a people who have been in captivity, who have lost hope. And he's reminding us that God can overcome any hopeless situation. That God can overcome any sin, any failure. Even the worst of days, God can overcome. But the question for us and the question for all of humanity throughout time has been, how can God overcome the evil of this world? How can God save us? If we are guilty and the judgment and suffering we receive is justified, then how can we receive grace? These are the questions that philosophers and theologians ask. Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, others. Those who don't believe in God. These are the questions we ask. But this is the holy mystery of God. 
It is the problem that philosophers have had over the century. This concept of who God is. This image of who God is. It's the problem that we have of God. And, and for you see, because when we talk about God, we, we have these different concepts, these different characteristics, these different uh, attributes of who God is. And so on one hand, we have this idea of God as transcendent. And on the other hand, we have this God, idea of God as imminent. And I know those are not words you use every day. We don't think about that every day. But this, these are the questions that people have throughout the ages. And, and if we think about it, just to remind you, transcendence is the idea of God being outside of creation. If there is a God and he created creation, then he had to be outside of that creation in order to create. Make sense? That's transcendence. And if God is outside of creation, if he is other than the world then can he possibly be a part of creation and be present in it? I don't know. Can he participate in this life, in our suffering, if he is transcendent, if he is outside of? If, and here's the question, if God is good, then he, can he possibly be a part of a creation that is bad and broken? If there is a good God, then how can he be part of a creation that is broken? See, people have struggled with that forever. And in fact, early Gnostics in the second century, uh, people who were Christian but they couldn't follow this Christian God, these Gnostics argued that God cannot enter this dark world. And further, that this world couldn't have been created by a good God. Because why is it so bad? And so what was their solution? Their solution was that the God of the Old Testament was evil. It must have been. Because how could that God create something like this? And they believed that there are many ways to God. And we're left to our own to figure it out. That is one answer. We're left to our own to figure it out. But that answer doesn't bring comfort to me at all. That answer doesn't comfort my soul. Others have come to the conclusion that God didn't know what he was doing when he created the world. That he didn't know the future. That he's not really sovereign. And, and, and that he is learning just like we're learning. To use a theological term, it's called process theology. Process theology. Process theologians believe that God doesn't know the future, how it will unfold. He's just as clueless as we are when it comes to the future. They believe that God is changing. He is learning, processing as the world goes on, as time goes by. Process theologians don't believe in miracles or even in the need for salvation. Now that's another answer. To the question. But it doesn't bring comfort to my soul either. But if we think of God as transcendent. Outside of time and space and creation. Then, then he doesn't know or really care about what is going on in our lives. That he's just out there. If, if we have that idea. 
that divine other that we can't touch or talk with or intersect with. If he is truly transcendent, that's what that means. But we have the other side of the equation as well, and that's the idea of imminence. Imminence is the idea that God is a part of creation. That he is indwelling, that he cares, he dwells with us. That is indeed the holy mystery of God, this divine paradox. We see this in Scripture as well. We have the idea of God's absolute transcendence, his otherness, and his ability also to be imminent, to be part of his creation. And here's the holy mystery. Here's the paradox. Both of these, I believe, are true. God is transcendent and God is imminent. We see that God sits on the throne above the earth, as Isaiah tells us later on in this text. We see this fact that he sits above creation. He is not a part of creation. He is not the sun. He's not the moon. He's not the stars. He's not identified by any object. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, he says, don't make an image of me because I'm not a part of this. I'm outside. Yet, at the same time, we see his eminence when it says God is love. As we lit the Advent candle earlier, we're reminded that God is love. He can intervene in creation. He has a grand design and plan. He is transcendent and he is eminent. But how? That's been the question that philosophers struggle with. That's been the question that all humanity struggles with. How? How can God do that? Well, Isaiah gives us a preview to the answer when he wrote, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her that she has served her term And that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He is reminding us that he can comfort, but how will he comfort us? And he goes on, a voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. I believe our souls find comfort in Christmas when we understand God's transcendence and his imminence coming together in Jesus Isaiah, as a prophet, was proclaiming a message to a people in exile. Right then, to those people thousands of years ago who were in exile. But he was also proclaiming the great prophecy to us now in our future. He says, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And in the beginning of the Gospels, we see this fulfilled when John the Baptist comes to the wilderness. Shouting, prepare the way of the Lord. Preparing for the coming of Jesus in Christ. We see the coming together of God's transcendence and God's imminence. This holy mystery, this paradox of who God is. That brings comfort and healing to our soul. What we see as humanity as impossible. That's why 
philosophers and theologians struggle with this because with logic they say, well, God cannot be both transcendent and God can't be imminent at the same time. And God says, yes, I can. Just watch. And God breaks through time and space and he enters into the creation that he created in the form of a child born of a woman, subject to our pain and agony, subject to the limits of our existence. Yet God, that is the holy mystery of Christmas. How could it be? I believe Christmas changes everything. And our souls find comfort in Christmas. I want to invite Jason to come back up as we sing here in just a second. And I want again this week to remind us of that. And I invite you to uh, close your eyes as I read another scripture that reminds us of this holy mystery. This mystery, this prelude that we have in Isaiah that we see fulfilled in Christmas. This comes from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1 through 6. Here again, this, these comforting words that Isaiah speaks to us. In that day you will sing, I will praise you, O Lord. You were angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. See, God has come. See, God has come to save me, and I will trust in him, and I will not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength. The Lord God is my song, and he has given me victory. With joy, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day you will sing. Thank you, Lord. Praise His name. Tell the nations what He has done. Let them know how mighty He is. Sing to the Lord, for He has done wonderful things. Make known His praise around the world. Let all the people of Jerusalem shout His praise with joy. For great is the Holy One of Israel who lives among you.